0: Welcome to Blog Talk Radio, in high fidelity.
1: Every day feels like Sunday.
2: Good morning. You are listening to Morning Moments with Maya, conversations of love and laughter on Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Maya Aziz, coming to you live from Montreal. And this is the show where each week I share three of my absolute favorite things, a fresh cup of coffee, some laughter, and an honest conversation with someone who is out there pushing the positive. Our topic today on the surface Maybe a bit of an odd combination for some of you. Humor, death, and maybe even the funny in funerals. But before you start getting upset with me and thinking that I'm going on some terrible path of disrespect, I want you to think about the last funeral you went to, or maybe even the period of planning a funeral that you were a part of. Was there laughter? Laughter. I would be willing to bet that there was. And in fact, maybe it was even therapeutic. Because isn't a funeral one of the best examples of a situation that raises the entire range of human emotions? The obvious brutal, painful sadness, anger, anxiety, guilt and regret, love. And probably all of those at the same time, and maybe even the sweet release of tension that comes from being handed an opportunity to laugh a little. George Bernard Shaw said, Life does not cease to be funny when people die, any more than it ceases to be serious when people laugh. But... Death and funerals are serious and demand appropriate respect. Yesterday, as I was preparing for this show, I couldn't help but think about how Obama had got raked over the media coals for getting caught laughing with the Danish prime minister at Nelson Mandela's memorial not that long ago. And there were all these questions about was he being disrespectful or at the halfway mark of that four-hour ceremony was he actually just showing a little of his humanness well i know that you're not tuned in to hear me babble on and on about this and that you are as interested as i am to hear what our very special guest today has to say a fellow canadian and graduate of the university of western ontario Dr. Ken Shonk practiced as a family physician for over 30 years before beginning a speaking career in which he shares with audiences of all sizes the truth that while there ain't much fun in medicine, there is a lot of medicine in fun. Over the last 15 years, he has given talks to over 900 different audiences, including the bereaved and even a presentation at a funeral director's convention. Dr. Shank believes, describes his presentations as a chuckles checkup in which he deconstructs the history, biochemistry, and uses of humor in medicine, showing how a little humor can go a long way to making life more bearable, even in life's most serious of moments. Dr. Shank, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you very much, Maya. I I could add to your comment uh, from George Bernard Shaw, Uh, Winston Churchill also said that in order to deal with the most serious things in life, you must also understand the most amusing. So again, uh, repeating what George Bernard Shaw said. And uh, it it, it really does uh, mean uh, that you've got to look at the whole thing. I have in family practice, uh, took me a few years probably, but found out that it was a very quick leap from humour to compassion and uh, Mm. when I get my audiences laughing I then ask them how do you feel after a good laugh and a lot of them we get throw out words like mellow, relaxed, compassionate good listener and I quickly realized that ideally it would be wonderful if I could have a good laugh before I walked in to see every patient because what it did was get rid of any agenda I had Uh, if I was upset or if I was frustrated or behind uh, it got rid of that and allowed me to focus on the patient's issues and problems rather than uh, anything that was offside, so to speak. So It I brought you 100%. to the present. Yes, it brought you to the present and allowed you to focus on what was going on. And I I do have one story that's been written up several times that uh, people, I think, can uh, identify with. And this, this happened oh, 25 years ago, a week before Christmas, Uh, I was having not a good day in the office. I was behind. I had a headache, and I walked in to see a five-year-old that had brought in by uh, his mother, and this child had been up all night with an earache and was not a happy camper, and was, in fact, was already underneath the examining table screaming when I went in, and I thought, oh, this is going to improve my day. But I finally got him out with a bit of wrestling. I got a look in his ears, but I knew he was upset, so I turned to him and I said, now, what did you ask Santa for Christmas next week? He looked me straight in the eye and said, a new doctor. And I went went back to write up his chart and uh, I said, my headache's gone. I feel better. And I realized I was going to survive the day in spite of it. So it's amazing how a quick little spontaneous laugh can just turn your day completely around uh, if you allow it to. Uh,
2: What a great uh, example. What a great example. It's so true. I'm curious. I, I mean, Did you always have this sense of humor? Is that something that you had even as a child? Where did your own sense of humor come from?
0: I was the oldest of four children, and I would say that I was the serious one, uh, the student, etc. But my parents certainly, especially my mother, had a great sense of humor uh, and uh, always uh, told us to buck up and and had a very quick wit. uh, And uh, my wife also has that and has kept it going. And I've realized that uh, um, I, and I began to use it a fair bit in practice, uh, and I've got a fairly good memory for stories. That uh, if, if people will bring up issues, and I will, it will bring back memories and, and uh, stories that I can relate to them, uh, and uh, keep smiling and make eye contact. Because we've had a lot of changes in, in family practice with computer systems and some of the patients now complain that the doctor spends their whole time focused on the computer screen and not looking them in the eye Mm
1: -hmm. and
0: uh, you can miss a lot and when you're not making eye contact with the patients and seeing what their uh, uh, body language is telling you and um, there was a fairly recent study I haven't had it confirmed but it makes some sense about that when people communicate only about seven percent of the communication is the words 38% is the tone and 55% is the body language so if you're getting an email, there may be a tone to it, but there's no body language. So if you're not making eye contact, you're missing out on over half of the communication. Mm-hmm. And in a number of cases I can relate, uh, that ability to read the body language uh, has saved my buns. It's, it's been the sort of thing where you realize that patient, patients often also come in with agendas. A, a simple agenda like a cough or a sore throat, Underneath that is a marriage that's in trouble, a child that may be on drugs, a parent that's just been diagnosed with cancer, and they won't get to that second agenda until they feel that you're really, they're really being listened to and that you're uh, on, uh, on base with them. And a uh, number of times, just, just be looking at the patient and making that eye contact, uh, you make that connection and uh, it can make a difference in the type of care that you're giving the patient. But uh, i learned this really from my patients, and, and uh, it's uh, uh, something that I uh, really appreciate uh, coming back from them. And uh, even with the really serious issues, as you say, uh, with, we had to deal with uh, heart attacks and patients telling them about the diagnosis of cancer, etc., uh, that uh, it's got to be what we call AT&T, appropriate, timely, and tactful, and often let the patient uh, lead the way.
2: Uh, and does that also help you in terms of knowing how to use humour appropriately by listening and letting them lead the way? Can you talk about that a little bit?
0: Yeah, uh, exactly. Uh, you can uh, pick up. Now, it, sometimes I would, I should tell you that I used to <clears throat> warm the patients up. By that I mean I had all my examining rooms full of uh, the Herman Cartoon series, Calvin and Hobbes. I had joke books for children uh, in the, right in the examining rooms. Most doctor's offices have the latest Time magazine or McLean's which has, you know, the latest uh, political scandal, the latest suicide bombing, uh, the latest uh, um, incorrect uh, airstrike. And you just become numb after reading that day after day after day. Mm -hmm. So I actually had many occasions where I'd walk in and the patients were reading Herman cartoons and giggling. And I also point out that when you're reading cartoons, you don't know you've been waiting if you think about
1: it. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm.
0: I had occasions where I'd walk in and there'd be an eight or nine-year-old child with a parent and the child would be reading jokes from a child's joke book to the parent. So you've got parent and child relating, you've got the child reading, and you've got them using humor to uh, a while the time while they're waiting for the doctor. Um, I, I had a number of occasions where I walked in, and patients reading Herman cartoons, and I said, well, what's the problem today? And the patient said, well, I came in depressed, but I feel better already. So I said, thank you so much, Herman. <laughs> uh, so you can warm them up uh, by having uh, something like that available for patients instead of you know, the latest information on cancer. And, and as I said, some of the, the stuff where we just get inundated now with bad news. That's, that's what sells. And uh, unfortunately, uh, it gets people down and depressed. So, and they got to know me, and, and quite often the patients would, I'd pick up a chart and say, ah, here's somebody who's going to have a new story for me. And you actually look forward to going in and seeing a patient. And, because uh, it, uh, there was a retired GP in Toronto who said that, uh, all patients bring joy into the office, most when they arrive and some when they leave. Uh, and <laughs> there are some patients when you pick up the chart, you realize, oh boy, we're we're in for some, some fun here. Uh, so that's one of the ways of, of doing it. And uh, I also had a... Have, and I take them with me when I talk. I have a great big gun dog who's about uh, three or f- about a meter high called Mutzi. And I had him in the office. And for kids that had to have needles or stitches, uh, we would bring the, this dog in and let them hug it while they had their stitches. You can't tell them it doesn't hurt because they know it hurts. But you mm-hmm. can say to them, here, hold this while you're having your stitches out or hold this while you're having your needle. I also used them for patients that came in that were perhaps crying they maybe lost somebody or they were having a marital breakup and you'd let them uh, hold this uh, dog uh, while they sort of opened up and it helps to open people up uh it's kind of fun to I mean, you speak in public and i you would hand the dog around and it's uh, women have no trouble relating to it it's fun to watch the men being asked to hug <laughs> yeah. the dog in front of their male peers uh, I did give a talk to a rotary businessmen's luncheon, and these were all lawyers, accountants, and stockbrokers in their three-piece suits. And I passed the dog around for hugs, and you thought I'd ask them to streak naked down Main Street. They were visibly distraught uh, at being asked to touch a a stuffed animal in front of their male peers. Um, You know, the idea that you have to be a macho male uh, and uh, not uh, not show any softness. Uh, So uh, I've done that many times. And uh, it, it is very helpful. And then I got some of the kids that would come in and they'd uh, come down to, to the examine room and say, where's Mutsi? I want Mutsi. Uh, so they could actually look forward to coming and see the doctor instead of that dread that uh, a lot of them have when they go to see the doctor. So mm-hmm. that, that's you know, a couple of the ways that we uh, try to make it a little easier for both me and the patient.
2: And what role, I mean, you've you've described a number of situations, and I I know you've also used humor in much more serious situations with patients, perhaps who are facing, uh, be it terminal illness um, or other serious illnesses. What role can humor play in those kinds of moments where I think it's not so obvious to everybody that it could be appropriate? Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, I can probably, <clears throat> the best example I've got is of a particular patient of mine who was an absolute delightful gentleman and uh, he actually uh, was was terminally ill with, with cancer and, and uh, I made a lot of house calls to see him because he wanted to die at home and this gentleman had a fantastic sense of humor. He actually was uh, a quadriplegic. He'd been a quadriplegic since 19 years of age. He worked full-time but each time when I came to visit him, the first five minutes he'd spend telling me all the jokes he'd heard that week. And I used to go <laughs> out to my car at the end of it and think, I should be paying him. Uh, he, was, he was there to pay me. And we had talked a bit about uh, setting up a humor project at our local hospital. And he actually, when he died, he left some money in his will to get this uh, humor project started. And we, with his wife's help and a committee, we set up something called Joke Junction at our local hospital. And... Uh, we um, brought in, uh, we bought some carts with TV, we brought in uh, joke books and uh, uh, walk, uh, tapes uh, with uh, you know, Bob Newhart, that sort of stuff. And I've had phone calls from Halifax to Victoria about setting this up uh, in other hospitals. Mm. And uh, it's something that's available to all the patients. It's been provided free. We're on a hiatus right now because we've been moved around a lot in the hospital with building and that. But... Uh, volunteers that uh, come into the hospital uh, they come in and they actually realize they're making a difference because they go around to the patient's bedside leave them a comedy movie to watch and they go back an hour later a couple hours later and see the patient actually feeling better uh, again it doesn't cure cancer or heart disease or diabetes but it's diversional while you're watching candid camera you're not worried about your surgery tomorrow that sort of thing and uh... it's uh, made quite a difference in a lot of the hospitals because uh... With the financial cuts, etc., hospitals are not happy places these days. So this particular patient, uh, you have to let them lead. Uh, And uh, quite often, too, uh, we had cases where we'd have a a friend that would come in and uh, maybe read jokes to a a patient that was uh, in palliative care. And some of them don't want it, and you have to read that message. And and, uh, I point out, though, that somebody that can still laugh and uh, end stages of their life means that they're still in control, uh, that the disease isn't controlling them. They're still in control of things, uh, if if you look at and analyze it well. And I think that's an important aspect. Uh, And uh, as you mentioned, I have been involved in a a program at uh, one of our uh, local funeral homes where I went in and spoke to, uh, well, 60, 80 people that had just lost somebody in the last couple of months. And I first thought that's going to be kind of tough. But I can mention to you that uh, I quickly realized one of them, I at the end of the session, I had a lady come up to me and she said, Doctor, I've been grieving for six years. I'm going to stop tonight. And I realized that she needed somebody with authority to allow her to <clears throat> to laugh again. And I mentioned to her that <clears throat> the fact that she was grieving means that she loved the person she lost. And she yes, yes, I did. And I said, well, all right, then let's assume they loved you as well. She said, well, yes, he did. I said, all right, he's looking down at you right now. What would he want you doing, grieving or laughing? And you could see the lights come on. And she said, well, he'd want me to be laughing, obviously. Uh, And uh, so that was uh, some feedback that I got that realized that it made a real difference for some people. uh, Because you're right, there's still that negative aspect about humor that anybody that's laughing is not serious, they're not productive, they're not creative, uh, they're putting people down. And uh, we just have to look at it differently, I think, and realize that uh, there are aspects of it that we just haven't learned about now. Um, I also, when I do my presentations, have several um, presentations of children laughing. And some of the kids are only three or four months old. And I've asked probably a quarter of a million people now uh, if they think those children have been taught how to laugh. And they all respond by saying, "No, it's built in. It's instinctive. It's hardwired. It's in the brain." And yet, what we often do as they grow up is condition it out of them. You know, they, we've all heard those expressions: "You you laugh too loud. You laugh too long. It wasn't all that funny. Get serious. Grow up." We've all heard those expressions, and the, quickly the children learn that it's not appropriate to laugh. Uh, and yet, it's there for a reason. It's there, it's a therapy. It's there. I think to help us get through some of these terrible things that happen to us. If that answers some of your questions,
2: it does. I mean, why do you think that is that we sort of, as particularly as adults, have this notion that laughter and taking things seriously or seeing yeah. the importance in things can't coexist? What is it about us or our yeah. society yeah. that leads to that misconception? Yeah.
0: I think I don't know what where it came from it may come from way back in the Victorian age uh, I I don't know but uh, John Dewey said it is possible to be playful and serious at the same time and in fact it represents the ideal mental condition but I've done some corporate work as well where you go in and speak to companies and staff in fact I've got one to do next week but it um, you talk to some of the employees and and uh, manager will come around. I mean, and I have one story, uh, one of the talks I gave, a gal um, got uh, an app to put on everybody's computer of Herman cartoons. And everybody, when they came into work, the first thing they do was log on and find out what Herman was <laughs> going to say that day. But she was looking at it one morning when her boss came by and said, this is no place for that kind of stuff. Either you go or Herman goes. So there's still that idea that people can't. And, and in fact, I think if you really carefully look at it, You're going to be most productive, most creative uh, when you're relaxed and when you're feeling uh, in tune with yourself, not with your boss over your shoulder saying, haven't you got that done yet? When's that report going to be done? Get back to work. Uh, When your anxiety levels go up, you can't be that creative. Uh, And uh, I think most people would agree that you're going to be most creative. And some of the newer businesses now, like Google and that with their their playgrounds in the, the office and slides and all that sort of stuff are starting to realize that when people are happy and when they're relaxed, that's when you're going to get the best ideas and, and uh, you know, get the best new products, etc. Uh, so we've just got to, I think there's some changes going on, uh, as I see. And in Kitchener here now, we've got several of the uh, IT companies that have come in and uh, you go into their uh, offices and they're a whole different ballgame from the, you know, the cubicles that we've, saw in the 50s and 60s where everybody was in, on their own in a little cubicle uh, working away. And so I think they're starting to realize that if you're going to have compete and have new products that you need people that are relaxed and you need people that are happy and uh, part of that comes of course being able to laugh. And I try to make the point too and probably one of the mainstays of my presentation As Ethel Barrymore said, that you reach full maturity the first time you have a really good laugh at yourself. And I Mm -hmm. tell people that if you can laugh at yourself, it means you're comfortable with who you are. Uh, If you're worried about how you look, you're worried about your weight, you're worried about your clothes, you're worried about anything like that, you're not comfortable, uh, you're not going to be comfortable laughing at yourself. So if you can uh, laugh at yourself, then that means that you are in a very good place. And I think most people would agree with that.
2: That's a great quote, and very, very true. It's interesting what you're saying. I think you're right that we're starting to see in some of these companies like Google that there's yeah. an understanding about the value of humor in play. I'm curious because one of the things I found really interesting um, was that you've actually been asked to present at uh, a convention that is probably not obviously a domain that would be connected to humor, and that was one of funeral directors. Can you tell yeah. me a little bit about? how that came to be and what value they saw in humor.
0: Well, actually when I analyzed that, and I've done a couple of them actually, that when you think about it, their entire working day is in the somber mode. You think about Mm -hmm. it when they're greeting people and coming in, there's no smiles, there's no laughter, nothing. It's all, I'm sorry for your loss. So they are in that lockdown mode all working day. I gather when they have a convention, they lock up the fire hoses. Uh, because these guys just have, and and women obviously uh, have to uh, let loose, um, because uh, they have very very few chances to uh, be uh, happy and laugh, etc. During the normal working day, and uh, now as a medical student as well, I mean I I spent a full first year of medicine and uh, anatomy uh, dissecting a cadaver. And uh, I also did autopsies on the weekends for extra money. And, and again, you're in a very, you probably heard of black humor and the toxic type humor that was used in emergency to relieve the tension. And we used a lot of that when we were uh, with our cadavers because they said you, you can't be dead serious, excusing the bad pun, uh, for, a long, for a long period of time uh, that you have to somewhere let off a little steam. And uh, now... As you say, when Obama got a little bit of flack for that, I I have no problem whatsoever with uh, you know his situation with Nelson Mandela and smiling and he's, he's human, and uh, you you can't tell people they're not human and uh, force them to uh, bring all those in. I think every if you had to think of every time you smiled or laughed, whether it was going to be appropriate, you uh, would be a pretty sad state of affairs. Uh, now <laughs> there are people who have said. I've had situations where I realized quickly it wasn't appropriate and you would say, I'm sorry, that wasn't appropriate. Can we start over again? And most people are quite willing to do that. Um, but it, it, things have gotten awful. you know, it being politically correct these days that people have to double think everything they say and do. And it, that becomes an anxiety provoking uh, situation on its own too. Um, there's a, a little saying I like, I often use it. People like, uh, that, uh, and it came from Jenny Banks, a lady that said, uh, laughter will inoculate you against the grumps and will decrease the number of scowl movements you have each day. <laughs> and uh, I kind of like that one, and people seem to like it as well. And uh, I've, <clears throat> I've been quite involved with uh, the uh, Humor Project out of uh, Saratoga Springs, New York, with uh, Joel Goodman as the director there. And he's put out a number of books and been involved for 25 years, 20, 30 years. Uh, He said, laughter is a wonderful way of preventing a hardening of the attitudes. Uh, Mm -hmm. And again, we're starting to see them change a little bit uh, as well. And often I refer back to children too. And and, uh, if you watch the kids playing, and they've done studies watching children play on a playground or a daycare center, uh, the giggling and laughing is the predominant emotion displayed and uh, some studies have have got that up to two to three hundred giggles a day with some of these kids and adults, uh, they've done studies where they may laugh twelve to fifteen times a day and realizing that we've gone from three hundred to twelve and uh, as we've grown up and become serious so to speak and uh, trying to convince people that we need to get back to that uh, childlike uh, idea where it's okay to giggle, it's okay to laugh, it's okay to smile and uh, I often tell people too that even when the phone rings in businesses that smile and then pick up the phone and you answer Mm -hmm. the phone in a different way um because uh, you can fake your body we've all had the situation where you've stood in front of a mirror and started to giggle and even the harder you try uh, you'll still end up laughing Um, and um, they've done some recent research and found now that there's something called mirror neurons in the brain and uh, what these neurons are uh, very close to the uh, motor neurons that, that uh, control smiling and laughing. So that when your eyes interpret quickly that someone is smiling, it's very hard not to smile yourself. Or if someone's laughing, it's very hard not to laugh yourself. That That's conditioned. It takes milliseconds for that to be interpreted in the brain, and away you go. Uh, so in, in trying to be serious all the time, we're having to, to shut that down, which can be a very frustrating type of thing to do. And when I first, I must admit, when I first started doing this talking back uh, about 28 years ago, I took a fair bit of flack from my medical colleagues because uh, they all said, well, you're just, this is anecdotal. There's no scientific. This isn't evidence-based. Well, we've got about 25 years of research now. And actually, we've got a textbook uh, called The Psychology of Humour by Rod Martin, who is a PhD psychologist who was at Waterloo here, is now at Western, I believe. Uh, who did? You know, it's a very academic book on the psychology of humor, and uh, they did studies and with university students, and, and uh, have gone through all of the benefits of humor that we were aware of, and were, we knew were anecdotal, but now uh, what he did was prove that they are right that it reduces anxiety, it increases your endorphin levels, which are natural painkillers. Uh, relieves anxiety, relaxes muscles, and he goes through a whole list of things that they uh, set about to prove uh, scientifically were correct. Uh, it actually improves, improves the immune system as well. And people say, "Well, that's wonderful." I say, "Well, you know, even if you it doesn't, you're still having more fun while you're here. Uh, you know, you're, <laughs> there's, there's no downside to it." Now, I do tell women you you may not want to laugh heartily if you've got a full bladder. That can be a problem. Um, <laughs> But uh, uh, the and uh, the the muscle relaxation. um, There's a fellow named Max Weinstein that I heard speak at the Humor Project, and he told a cute story of uh, helping some friends. It was a university student move a freezer up two flights of stairs, and halfway up the second flight, somebody cracked a joke. And uh, being I'm in Mennonite area, I can ask you what they call it when a Mennonite takes a work break. Do you know what they call it? It's called no. It's called <laughs> menopause, of course. Uh sorry, sorry about that. But uh, they, they, they told a joke and they started laughing and they ended up dropping this freezer and it smashed. But Max said, oh. wait a minute here. I was holding that freezer. I started to laugh. I knew I shouldn't drop it, but I still dropped it. And he thought, hmm, can we take the business executive who's uptight with migraines and cervical muscle spasm and back spasm and stomach ulcers Make him laugh and force him to relax because you cannot contract your skeletal muscles and laugh mirthfully at the same time. I often ask people, too, what's the first thing you do? You make that trip to Buckingham Palace and the guards are standing at attention. (laughs) (laughs) Try to make him laugh, right? Uh, (laughs) Because you can't stand at attention and laugh at the same time because it's, it's physiologically impossible to do. Uh, so uh, we've got and we've now got biochemical evidence as well they're now actually there's now small studies I admit uh, Dartmouth and Stanford have done uh, functional MRIs on people laughing to find out what actual parts of the brain are active when you're laughing and um, they, they're all preliminary studies but uh, something called the nucleus acumens lights up and it's the area, same area in the brain that lights up when drug addicts are high uh, but you're, you're lighting it up without having the drugs. Uh, you're laughing. Mm-hmm. And uh, they've also found some interesting gender differences in humor as well, in that women access their uh, language and memory areas before uh, laughing. Uh, women are much more careful about humor. They, and again, there are rules on you. Know, you, you, make, you don't make fun of things that people can't change, like they're, they're overweight or bald or etc., those kind of things you it's uh, you know it 's okay to maybe make fun of choices they make, uh, and often i 've asked many audiences now how many women have rushed out to see the last three Stooges movie we haven 't had a hand go up yet um, <laughs> wi- w- women aren 't in this slapstick slapstick humor uh, that sort of thing uh, and uh, so it's interesting to see that uh, there are gender differences in humor uh, i 've also Uh, Asked many many people now in my audiences uh, if anybody's heard a viable father-in-law joke, and I haven't had one yet. Mm -hmm. And I say, well, have you have you heard a mother-in-law joke? And they all say, oh yeah. And I I repeat the one I like about uh, the uh, definition the uh, mother-in-law the um, who uh, drove uh, my car off a cliff in a brand new car. so that uh, they, I uh, point out that women, women uh, they, men make up the jokes, and there obviously are ba- bad father-in-laws, but there are no father-in-law jokes, um, just mother-in-law jokes. Uh, so the definition of mixed emotions is watching your mother-in-law drive off a cliff in your brand new car, uh, and uh, <laughs> we, we uh, realize that uh, there, there is a difference that uh, we don't realize. And uh, there's a, an author I heard speak uh, at the Humor Conference who was fantastic, Regina Baccarat. She wrote a book called, I uh, used to be called Snow White, but I drifted. And she wrote another book called Perfect Husbands and Other Fairy Tales. And uh, she was dynamite. <laughs> she just pointed out the differences in humor uh, in males and females. And I think we're seeing some differences in that now. But uh, it's, it's interesting that uh, we've got all this research now that is showing just how valuable uh, this humor is uh, in, uh, in life. And uh, large studies, too, and I've, I've checked this out on several occasions. Uh, when women are asked, what is the single most important thing you look for in a lifelong mate, sense of humor was number one, uh, mm-hmm. because uh, that won't change, likely. Um, obviously, your looks and passion and all those things are going to change. But if you've got somebody that can turn your laughter buttons on on a regular basis, uh, you can't put a price tag on that. And you were talking about serious issues, too. Um, one of the talks I gave, I had a lady come up to me, and, and she was in tears. And I didn't think my jokes were that bad, but she said, Doctor, never stop talking about the value of laughter. And she was young, mid-30s. She said, I have ovarian cancer. And she said, about three weeks ago, I went into the hospital as an outpatient and had chemotherapy. And she said, I came home with a headache and nausea and vomiting and diarrhea and crawled into bed. And she said, my husband came to bed an hour later and made amorous overtures. She said, I looked at him and shook my head. And she said, he looked at me with a big warm smile and said, I know, not tonight. I've got cancer. And she started to giggle. And she said, we held each other. And she said, it was one of the most precious moments in my life because he recognized how much I was hurting, and he made me laugh. So there's a situation. Most of us are saying, back off, back off. Don't do it. Don't do it. No, if it's done with love, care, and compassion, uh, it can be a very, very poignant moment. And obviously it was for her. So there's another example where you know you can use humor in it in a situation where most of us would back right off and not know what to do at all and uh
2: your, your point is, is so well made that if it's done with love, yeah. um, it can be so powerful for both yeah. individuals involved, and whether yeah. it is amongst a family or with a healthcare practitioner, yeah. um, I think it can have a really powerful impact um, depending yeah. on the intention and how yeah. it's done. And of course, as you had said earlier, um, you do have to read the other person and make sure yeah. that you know, they aren't open to yeah. it.
0: Yeah. Well, you might appreciate one other true story of a patient of mine who before I retired, an older gentleman who if would have uh, uh, he was a little on the, the crotchety side, but uh, he set me up. I walked into the examining room to find him already stretched out on the examining room table. He had taken the sheet we provided and pulled it right over his body and he would brought in a sign he'd made up that he'd stuck on his chest that said, too late. And oh my gosh! I, I, I can tell you that he got an extra 20 minutes out of me that day, and uh, when I when I tell patients or I talk to uh, audiences, I tell them to take a bit of humor into your doctor, because they're all stressed out. We're all working in that hurry up and wait system, uh, frustrated. There's a tremendous amount of paperwork. We know when you should have your MRI, when you should see the specialist, but it doesn't happen these days. So there's a lot of frustration, anxiety among the doctors, and I point out that if you take a bit of humor in that you become human instead of somebody with a cough or a rash or a chest pain you become a human being and you will get better medical care and hopefully Mm -hmm. some of the people have taken that to heart and gone in and uh done that and i really believe it's true that if you as I said between very shortly between humor and compassion that um if you bring a bit of humor in and the doctor is uh behind or upset or frustrated and you get them laughing a bit you then can get down to... Now, nobody's saying you just laugh and and don't solve the problem. Uh, I think what I'm saying is you get to that point where you're both relaxed and then you deal with the issues as well. So you get the double whammy, you get relaxed and then you actually can help solve the problem as well, uh, whatever it may be. So that uh, I have uh, one other story that you might like about a uh, a lady of mine that uh, had a great sense of humour And I dealt with her medical problem one day, and I went to leave the room, and she turned to me and said, I've got a a complaint about you. And I stopped, and I said, what on earth did I do? And she looked at me, and she said, I have been reading about all this sexual abuse of doctors and their patients, and you haven't touched me yet. Oh, my goodness. we, we, We had a very good laugh. I gave her a very careful hug and said, thank you, made my day. Uh, so that you can then skip out and go on to the next patient and realize that life is going to be all right. uh,
1: mm-hmm.
0: So it uh but, you know it's very uh helpful to, to to use that as well uh with it and uh so that uh it um and even uh, hosp- you know inpatient hospital too and most people uh males especially hate hospitals and i point out that uh, it, the women have babies and are used to uh, some, that sort of thing, and are more relaxed anyway. But uh, males especially hate hospitals because they lose control. You know, they mm-hmm. take your clothes off, mm-hmm. give you a, a gown with your bare butt hanging out. Uh, they tell you when you can eat, what you can eat, when you're going to have the tests. And men especially find that very threatening uh, and uh, very upsetting. And uh, that's where, you know, we. Hopefully some of these people will make use of the, the humor. Um, a number of years ago, one of the nurses who worked very hard on our joke junction, uh, we talk about that mystique about uh, humor not being appropriate, she very carefully selected cartoons appropriate, et cetera, and then she made up a bulletin board to put uh, on the uh, hospital uh, wall or on the, uh, uh, her particular ward. And her manager came along and and, uh, said that this was totally inappropriate and tore them all down. Um, Oh! So we've got people like that. Um, One of the best nurses I ever worked for told me a a true story, too, uh, about um, she's now working in in a nursing home. She had two um, females, uh, government inspectors, inspecting the uh, nursing home in her office. And I guess the door was open and uh, there were of her staff out in the hall and a couple of them laughed and one of the government inspectors said what is going on this is a nursing home that sounds totally inappropriate to have laughter going on and this nurse I think answered her very very appropriately she said this is these people's home the fact that the staff is laughing means that they are totally relaxed and totally uh, enjoying their job when it's real quiet is when you better start to worry and Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's very true um and uh, I've, uh, I have a surgeon colleague who told me a similar story about doing surgery on a lady who was anesthetized and the uh, nurse or the anesthetist or somebody told a joke and they had a bit of a laugh, everything went well, and the next day making rounds to see her, uh, and this happens occasionally, this woman apparently uh, recalled the joke even though she was under anesthetic and gave him a lecture about laughing during the surgery. He said, ma'am, the fact that we were laughing means that we were totally in control and totally relaxed. When it's real quiet in the operating room is when you better start mm-hmm. to worry. Mm-hmm. And when you think about it, he's right. You're not yes, going to be yes. If, if, if things are not going well,
2: you know, sort of it, thing. It, that's right that's right yeah people's understanding is not always yeah. uh completely uh, accurate unfortunately we are slowly running out of time i feel like i could listen to your stories all day long <laughs> i'm curious uh do you have any uh interesting new projects coming up i know you're doing a lot of speaking and sharing yeah. this wisdom with all kinds of groups yeah. of people
0: yeah yeah we've done i've got um I'm I'm doing some part-time work, and I'm going to be speaking to the staff next week. Uh, I've done a lot of seniors' groups, um, and uh, we um, I've got one coming up in Woodstock. Uh, we've got a number. I'm not I'm sure Montreal has this as well. We have a, a, a program here with uh, universities uh, with uh, uh, Laurier and Waterloo. One of them is called Tall Third Age Learning. And uh, they have a series of lectures uh, every Tuesday and Thursday afternoons. They bring in either retired professors or some of them are active professors, and cover topics. They're getting three to four to five hundred seniors out to these talks, and uh, wow, they, um, there's no tests. It's just there for learning, and uh, um, the people just seem to really, really lap it up, and uh, we, um, are, you know, really enjoying that sort of thing. Um, I've done you know, every, um, Probus and Kiwanis and Rotary and all of those, Optimus, all those kind of clubs we've done. Um, I have noticed a, a bit of a, a difference too between rural and urban. That, uh, And again, having spent time on a dairy farm as a, uh, a teenager and work, um, rural people have to flex. I mean, they, they you can't control the weather, et cetera. And if you're going to cut hay and it rains, you you fix the tractor in the shed. Where city people want everything controlled, you know, you plan your picnic and it rains, and they're mad. Uh, and uh, I notice, uh, I, I would have to say that there is uh, more readiness to laugh in the rural people than there are in the area. Of course, then they, I don't look at myself as a stand-up comic, and I'm not doing what I would call real research. I, I guess I think my niche basically is in the use of humor and, and how it can be used. Uh, rather than, uh, I don't consider myself, I guess, Rod Martin has a very academic book, his Psychology of Humor. I don't consider myself anywhere near the knowledge that he would have. And uh, I don't consider myself Jerry Seinfeld either. Uh, but I think what I'm doing is just showing people in some situations where humor can be used, where they may not thought it was appropriate, as you said, to funeral homes, that sort of thing, uh, where uh, that hopefully we're getting to some people that... Um, And the feedback I've had has been quite positive uh, in that uh, people come up after I talk and say, you know, you make a lot of sense. Um, I've done a lot of medical stuff because I'm a physician. And uh, the interesting thing is that, uh, you know, you can buy a fancy machine for a hospital. that may affect 5% of the patients that come in. You can set up a a, uh, joke junction or a humor project that can affect everybody that comes in the door. Uh, if they want. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there, there's a, an issue there of uh, how things are used and how often they're used, that sort of thing. And uh,
2: Because so it has I, such I, universal I, applications here. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. And I've had a number of people said I should be writing a book myself. And I've got some ideas, but I just haven't got a, around the time to say. I should mention, and, and I don't think it's in there, uh, that you asked about You know, when I maybe first started all this, In 1988, I was diagnosed myself with a very, quite a rare neurological disease and was in a wheelchair for six weeks and wasn't sure whether I was going to walk again. Uh, A disease called CIDP, chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy, which I'm sure you're very familiar with. Uh, It's a cousin of of GBS, but uh, I found that uh, I ended up in my own uh, hospital in London uh, as a patient being exhibited to the medical students. So here's... I'm in my own alma mater uh, as a patient being shown to the medical students now and uh, I found that I used quite a bit of humor to get me through that uh, The family support and help Uh, and I'm still dealing with it uh, even 28 years later Um, but uh, I found that humor was probably integral to uh, me uh, getting through that particular episode and I've had some relapses since etc it uh probably that was the impetus to to start the first talk I gave uh, I was I had just started to walk again with a cane uh, at that point, and uh, so that maybe got me started with all this, uh, even though so uh, you know the you
2: know the value of humor very personally yes. from yep. both sides yep. of the coin, which I think is yep. quite interesting. Yep. Before we go, Dr. Shank, I'm wondering if you've got yep. uh, a favorite joke or a, or a last story that you'd like to share with listeners.
0: Oh, well, I'm just trying to think here what's appropriate. Some of it aren't appropriate, of <laughs> course, but uh, actually we've had a lot of seniors uh, stories and uh, uh, they uh, when you get a seniors group, it's, it's again, if you can make fun of the fact you're aging and that sort of stuff, it, it's not quite as, as difficult, but I do have a story that people like about the uh, older gentleman i had in with a sore ear and i looked in his ear and i pulled out a Gravel suppository and i said what on earth are you doing with a suppository in your ear he said ah now i know where my hearing aid is uh it's a bit of a story but i like it Uh, uh, (laughs)
2: that's so perfect on that note i want to thank you so much for joining us i am going to include. Your website uh, in the notes for yep. this show, so people will be able to okay. Uh, okay. get more information I'm, if they would like. Yeah, yeah and if I ever you to... do write that book, yep. I want to uh, hear about it. I will both read it and would love to have you come back to talk okay. about it.
0: Okay, you're welcome. I'm going to got to jazz up my website. It's about 15 years old. It and uh, I'm going to probably change it, but uh, uh, it uh, needs a, needs an overhaul. But uh, just so people know that. But uh, <laughs> enjoy, and uh, I've enjoyed talking to you as well.
2: You take care and have a great rest of the day.
0: All righty. Thanks. (laughs) Bye-bye.
2: Bye-bye. That was the ridiculously charming Dr. Ken Shonk with so many great tidbits about uh, the value and applications universally of therapeutic humor and laughter. Next week, a show that I have been very anxious to have. It's a little bit of a selfish show. Um, As I find myself spinning in the whirlwind of back-to-school season and a new job and, well, just the regular circus that is my life, Uh, next week, Sharon Weinstein, author of B is for Balance, 12 Steps Toward a More Balanced Life at Home and at Work, is going to be with us. To hopefully help me balance it all and you at the same time note to self buy myself a notebook and pen before next sunday because i am sure that i'm going to be wanting to take notes on that one until then here's wishing you a week of love and laughter and as I look out of the studio windows and see all the oranges and reds blushing in the trees, I am reminded of a great line from Captain Cragen. yes, that's right, I am now quoting Law and Order here on Morning Moments. <laughs> he said, nothing changes except what has to. This is Maya, and I am out. <laughs>
1: Like Sunday morning I still got my day job But I feel so free Baby, I got